Let's pray together. Father, we once again come before You and acknowledge our dependence upon You in all things. Certainly, we are dependent upon You when we come to Your Word and open Your Word together. You have promised by the power of Your Spirit as Your children that You illumine our understanding, that You allow us to know You and to understand You and to gain riches for our life by way of Your Word, whereby we are, through our submission to it, made more like Christ in obedience, honoring Your name. You grow us into Christ's likeness by Your grace and mercy. <clears throat> so Lord, this morning as we look at a familiar passage to us, really, <clears throat> we pray that our minds would be enriched and strengthened and really thoughtful in ways maybe we haven't thought before about You and about the truth of Your dear Son. So thank You for this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Luke chapter 2. I know some of us have been wondering when we'd get back to Luke. We spent five or six weeks away from Luke, doing some necessary study for our own hearts on living the Christian life in the world in which we live and how to discern things that are not commanded in Scripture, how to make choices and decisions that are honoring to God and glorifying to God and reflective of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning we return to Luke I want to begin our time this morning by reading for us from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and reading all the way down to verse 20. Luke tells us, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up to get went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. 
For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at these things which they were told by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard, and seen just as had been told them. We began our study of the Gospel of Luke some time ago, and we have finished walking our way through chapter 1 and the 60 or the 80 verses that are included there. And I trust, really, that we have come away with a solid understanding of what the angel said to Mary in verse 37 of chapter 1, that nothing is impossible with God. Now it's easy for us to say that. It's easy for us to intellectually, in our own minds, tell other people that truth. And yet oftentimes we do not live as if we believe that. That nothing is impossible with God, and yet here is God Himself through Luke telling us exactly what the angel was dispatched to say to Mary as He dutifully declares to her all that was going to come about by God accomplishing it through her. There would be a divine interaction, a divine intervention that would take place that while she, being a virgin, even though she had never been with a man in any intimate way, she as a young girl was going to become pregnant with the Son of God. This would be, of course, by divine interaction. The divine interaction of God the Spirit upon her and through the omnipotent power of the Godhead at work over her and overshadowing her, in her womb she would carry the divine Son of God as the outworking of the plan of God's redemption to be unfolded for all who would ever believe all of it being carried out according to the exact day and according to the exact time that God had sovereignly ordained in eternity past. And for us who sit here this morning and for all who were there in those very moments and for centuries that have gone by since that very time, 
all that would take place would in fact be an impossible event. You and I would not believe it at all. It would be impossible for anyone to ever believe it were it not for God being the one to accomplish it. There are just too many contingencies. There are just too many variables. There are just too much by way of we like to think about in humanity by way of coincidence that needed to take place for all of this to happen. And so just as God has foretold, all of it has come about and Mary has become pregnant with this fully human and yet fully divine child. So you here you have this obscure, unknown young girl from an unpopular Galilean village, engaged in the normal course of life during the Jewish days in the early centuries, engaged to a normal, average, run-of-the-mill young man who worked with his hands as a carpenter living in the same unpopular village in which she lived. A man who is now under great suspicion. Why? Because his betrothed-to-be wife is pregnant before they are wed. In the minds of many, they are the local, local tabloid scandal. In the minds of those around Nazareth and Galilee, they are a shock. And then Luke begins his faithful historical account of what was taking place during the time in chapter 2. And we are told of the birth of this son. I was thinking about it recently and I remember the times when all of my children were born, as many of you who have children certainly remember. When our children were born, there was great anticipation. There were people who we had happened to know from all over the country because of ministry who were excited to hear about our growing family, excited to hear about the children being born. Our own parents were overjoyed at the prospect of enlarging their grandparent basket, if you will. It was an exciting time. And we come every year, December rolls around, we come to this time of year, the Christmas season. And very often, even in our Christmas Eve time together, we we read the the, the gospel narratives, the passages that, that deal with the birth of Jesus Christ. And this is one of those passages that we read about. And with it comes a great amount of singing. We, we sing all of the songs like we've done this morning that, that extol Jesus Christ and who He is. And we praise God with our voices for what has happened. We place a whole lot of fanfare upon the day. And in fact, everywhere around the globe, everywhere around our earth, the birth of Jesus is celebrated, ironically, even in homes of pagans who do not believe in God. That's not how it was in the day that Jesus was born. At least not here on earth. There was no earthly fanfare. There was only 
obscurity. It was only obscurity. You, you, you may not have noticed it as we were reading the account. We're so familiar with it sometimes that we miss the point. But, but when we read this account, there is a sense of the unprofound profundity of the Incarnation. It is, it is stated in such unprofound ways, and yet it is the most profound in anything that we could see. And as we look at it through the eyes of, of the historian, Luke, we get to see it from no less than two vantage points, at least here in these verses. And in both, we can see that God is orchestrating it all. God is orchestrating all of it, for his own ends. And the two vantage points are this. One, the first vantage point is the vantage point from a human, a human with, with great visibility, a human with, with this claim of being a God himself, is here requiring all of humanity within the world to be counted for the purpose of his own proclaimed greatness. All of that is contrasted, secondly, in the second vantage point, with the true God, the living true God, entering into this world in obscurity as a real man, fully human, yet fully God, for the purpose of eternally saving a lost people, all for the glory of God the Father. Amazing to me how unprofound the details are. This is the most profound event to ever take place, and yet God, in His divine wisdom and through His own care, has given it to us in such an unprofound way by way of the details. This is the birth of the most important individual who has ever walked on this planet, and yet it is proclaimed in such a humanly unprofound way. We just witnessed the funeral of a well-known senator in our country. And it was done with all the pomp and circumstance that could ever come with someone's life and hailing all that he had done and all that he was. And surely those were things that could be remembered about the man People went and people saw and people heard and people paid homage to this only human. Yet here is God doing what is most profound in utter obscurity. While all of humanity is going about their very lives like ants on a sugar hill, while all of humanity is scurrying about, dealing with the details, trying to follow the rules that have just been passed down to them of this one who claims to be God, here is the true and living God, quietly and without any human fanfare, standing on the edge of His glorious position as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and then diving headlong into His creation and wrapping Himself in human flesh, so that what he has created 
in eternity past could be saved from his own righteous wrath. In order that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit would be glorified by a redeemed people. That's what's happening here in this text. Sometimes I get into my studies and I go, okay, this is so profound, and yet look what God has done. God has used only 140 English words in just the first seven, seven verses. 140 English words in just those seven verses, and in reality, He only uses eight words in verse 7 to announce the greatest event that ever took place in all of human history. Here it is. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it? It's so profoundly understated. And yet, it is so profoundly shocking to our ears when we understand what just happened. God, the Creator Himself, has taken on human flesh so that we would be saved. God has taken on human flesh so that we would be saved. In fact, the angel expands upon it with the shepherds in verse 11. We're not going to talk about this this morning, but notice what he says. For you today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord That's what really has taken place in verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Who is this firstborn son? This is none other than God Himself. This is Christ the Lord. Let's look at this as we have been given it. Let's look at this through the two vantage points that I have already mentioned. Vantage point number one, a human with great visibility and claiming to be God, requiring all of known humanity to be counted for the purpose of His own proclaimed greatness. We see it in verses 1 to 5. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, Luke tells us exactly which census it was. It was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius took multiple censuses while he was there as governor, and this was the first of those. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city, and therefore Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So this is where we start. Here we are at the beginning. And we have to not miss the truth that is threaded through all of those words. The truth of what? God is orchestrating all of it so that 
All that God has declared will happen just at the right time and in the right place so that He is glorified for it all and His Word is shown to be completely true. Again, we have to refer back to verse 37 of chapter 1. Nothing is impossible with God. God is doing all of this. That's why it says in verse 1, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out. It was the decree from Caesar Augustus, it says, and yet we understand that it was God who is ultimately in control. It is God who is doing this. This is God who is acting. This is Psalm 46. This is is the psalmist saying that God takes the king's heart and turns it wherever he wishes, some or Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of God. He, he turns it wherever he wishes. This is the decree from a man, and yet it's God ultimately in control. This is God turning the heart of the king to ensure that his plan takes place. This is the working out of a divine plan that would cause the Savior of all who would ever believe to be born in Bethlehem, just as Micah the prophet had said. Micah 5, chapter 2, or or chapter 5, verse 2. That it would be out of Bethlehem that the Savior would come, and here is God orchestrating all of the events, taking even the sinful wickedness of men and using it for His purposes in order to take care of all the contingencies that needed to take place at this certain moment in this certain time so that Caesar Augustus would make a decree. Who is Caesar Augustus? According to Luke, he's the ruler of all who lived on the earth. That's why he makes that last statement in verse 1. This was a a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. He's talking about the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus makes a decree. He sets out a lawful mandate. There's a frightening word for us. He set out a a dictator's mandate, if you will, that the inhabited earth was to register under a census. Historians tell us that Caesar Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and he came to power in the Roman Empire by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. He was a very shrewd ruler. He Like many in the ancient days, they would take out those who were ahead of them in order that they wouldn't be removed from their power. He was a very shrewd ruler like many, and yet he seemed to govern in a way that lasted for quite some time. And he was the first Caesar to be called Augustus. He was the first Augustus Caesar, if you will, and he was given that name by the Roman Senate. Augustus means holy. That's what it means, reverend or, or to be revered, or his august majesty is really the title of it. He's majestic, and so he, he's considered a godlike person. 
Hence the reason I've made that comment already about him. Here's a human who is celebritied as God. And so here he is, considered to be a God, and he is declaring a worldwide decree. A decree in ancient times was mandatory. It was law. The king made the decree. You did it. If you didn't do it, the penalty was usually death. And this particular decree was in order to have everyone registered, not registered as under a census like we have them in our country by way of population so that they can now determine who gets voting rights and all of these kinds of other things that the government tells you a census is for. No, a census during ancient times had everything to do with taxation in order to ensure that everyone was paying their legal and lawful taxes that were due. So it was a census simply to, to go out among the inhabited earth in order to enrich himself, in order to ensure that he was getting all of the money that he, as the Caesar, wanted. And so we must not miss the point here. There is wisdom of God that is on display We don't think of it like that way. We just think of this as the normal human action that is taking place around the world. But this is God's wisdom on display. Now think about it. The Jews are now under the rule of the Roman Empire. They had certainly had been taken captive over the years by others, but here they are under the rule of the Roman Empire. The Romans have now risen to rule the world as an empire they had the jews had long feigned their obedience to god as their king and now they are under the domain and the taxation of a foreign power in other words they no longer actually have an independent rule of their own they they the Roman government, uh, as we saw in our study through even the Gospel of Mark, and we'll see through our study of Luke, the, the Roman government tolerated the Jews and their own religious laws as we see them go before him when it comes to the trial of Jesus Christ. They tolerate that, but they're, they're really under no independent rule of their own. And Luke says, and now the time had come. What time? Well, in reality, now the time came about that God had planned from eternity past. That's really what is happening here. It came about the time that God had planned in eternity past, the time for which the Godhead had determined that the Messiah would come. That time is upon us. And Caesar Augustus, a man who is now being hailed as God, commands the entire world to be registered so that they might enrich his own self-interest, a time when the Jews were under one world ruler, and at once, in the midst of that governmental time, Christ is born. It's interesting how commentators over the past have looked at this. J.C. Ryle long gone now and with the Lord, said it this way, it was a time particularly suitable for the introduction of the gospel. I thought that was an interesting comment. This was a time particularly suited for the introduction of the gospel. Why? Because the whole inhabited earth was now governed by one master. 
We have an inhabited earth in our day and age that is governed by multiple masters. You have countries and, and sovereign lands who all have quote-unquote borders that the people within that land are part of that citizenry. And you have some that are evil and some that aren't as evil as the others. And yet there isn't yet to be a one world ruler like it will be during the tribulation. And yet here it is in this time. And it's a time particularly suited for the introduction of the gospel. Why? Because there's nothing to prevent someone who has the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to go from city to city and country to country. There's no need for a visa to enter into a country that does not want to hear anything about God. This is the Roman Empire. There's no borders. It's a time for the true and living God to intervene from heaven. Time for God to send His own Son, the Savior. This is a time for Christ to be born. And so God Himself, in His orchestration of His plan of redemption, is moving the ruler of the known world to decree a census. So that all the people of the known world, including the Jews, will go to a given town to register themselves. And of course, Joseph is dispatched, therefore, to Bethlehem. Verse 4, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. It's interesting that Luke, in his geographical description of this region, even says it geographically accurate that Joseph went up from Galilee. Galilee is to the north of Jerusalem, and when we say that, we would say he went down to Jerusalem, and yet Galilee is lower geographically by way of elevation than Jerusalem, and so he says he went from Galilee up from the city of Nazareth to Judea. Judea was south, but Judea was up. Literally in elevation, it was higher. And so he went on his journey to Bethlehem. This is the place where Jesus is to be born. God had to have Mary in Bethlehem. God had to have Mary in Bethlehem. Why? Not because of fate. Certainly not because of circumstances beyond control. Mary wasn't there by coincidence. No, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem because God had declared that to be the place. Now when we think about it, and we think about here's this pregnant woman, she is towards the end of her pregnancy, common human logic would say that Mary would be wise to stay home. That Mary would just stay in her own hometown, in Nazareth, around family, around friends, not in some faraway town surrounded by strangers. The overruling providence of God is visible even in the fact that they had to go. That God had directed the enforcement of a legal decree, a legal mandate from a dictator in such a way that Mary in her very last month of pregnancy, would have to travel some 80 to 90 miles. She would have to go south with Joseph, and she would be in Bethlehem at the very moment that God brought about His Son's entry into the world. 
That's what it says in verse 6 and 7. Now I want us to think about something here. Caesar Augustus, nor his governor Quirinius, knew that they were instruments in the hands of God. Caesar Augustus was going about his rulership as he'd always thought about in his own pagan mind, even from his upbringing. Quirinius was a governor who was just carrying out the details of the one who ruled over him. Neither one of them realized that they were fulfilling the eternal purposes of the king of kings. They didn't have one coherent thought that any of them, that they themselves were helping to lay the foundation for a kingdom in which every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They didn't think about that. But that's what's happening. While they are exacting and extracting from others to uplift their own greatness... Well, they're going about life as if it's all about them and as if it's all about their self-aggrandizement. If it's all about their puffing up and their lauding of themselves. In fact, each one of us knows that it's God working. The truly great one is working to fulfill in time what he had planned from all eternity. I don't know about you, beloved, but I find that a great comfort. I find that a great comfort, not just at Christmas time, when I think about any time, each one of us who are here today ought to find great comfort in knowing that God is ruling all things. God is ruling all things. God is even using wicked men to accomplish His great glory. Even in our country. None of us who are Christians ought to be in any way anxious about the conduct of today's rulers. None of us. Why? Because the God of our salvation, God the Creator, is ruling over it all, all for the praise of His glory. Even in the day of Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus could do nothing. Even with all of his power, he could do nothing, but only what God had allowed him in order to carry out his will. Do you find that amazing and miraculous? That here is a man who rules over all the inhabited earth, and he himself could do nothing unless God the Father allowed it. And so, under the providential hand of God, Caesar makes a decree. And that decree is implemented. And Joseph and Mary, two people who worship the living and true God, go from Nazareth in Galilee, and they go down to Judea, to the city of David, To Bethlehem, why? Because Joseph and Mary were of the house. They were of the lineage of David. They were of the line of David. This is where the Davidic family would have gone. Verses 6 and 7 says, And it came about that while they were there, 
the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So from vantage point number one, we go to vantage point number two. Vantage point number two is this, the true God, the true God entering into the world. He enters in obscurity as a real man, all for the purpose of eternally saving a lost people for the glory of the Godhead, for the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been a grueling journey. Certainly would have left Mary exhausted. You gals who have been with child would certainly in some ways know how Mary would have felt being in her ninth month of pregnancy. And just the thought of walking from your couch to the front door can be a daunting task. And here is Mary walking or maybe even riding on the back of a donkey for nearly 80 to 90 miles. I can hear you ladies say, no thank you. No thank you. You say to yourself sometimes in your mind, why would God do that? Why would God have Mary do that? Why would God have Mary go through all of that? Why? I mean, that seems rather incompassionate. I mean, shouldn't God just have had her in a nice feather bed at home under the care of her family? I mean, why go 80 to 90 miles? Why would Mary have to do all that? Because Mary needed to be in Bethlehem. And almost as soon as they arrive... Not in any shock to any of us who have had children. Says the days were completed for her to give birth. Really? Yeah, after an 80, 90 mile donkey ride, you'd be wanting to give birth too, even if you were in your first month. Here she is. And it came about, verse 6, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. As soon as they arrived, the birth pains are upon her, it seems. They're in a strange, personally unknown place. (coughs) Verse 7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son. So understated. So understated. This is the greatest birth that would ever happen upon this earth. And all we hear from God is in His celestial birth announcement on humanity, here at the very birth, at the birthplace, all we hear from God is, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. It's almost as if God is saying, nothing unusual here, just the birth of a baby. Nothing abnormal, except that this is God. This is the ruler of all things. This is God Himself entering into humanity, not under the roof of His own mother's home, rather in a strange place, in Bethlehem. 
In Bethlehem, accommodations would have been sparse on a normal occasion. If you were traveling there on any given day, it would have been sparse. It's no surprise that it would be sparse at this moment, but even with the height of all the throngs of people coming to register to Bethlehem, accommodations would have been even more so sparse, difficult to come by. There was no internet to get on Hotels.com in Bethlehem and find a nice place to reserve. There was no, hey, text a friend in Bethlehem and see if they could hold a place for us. There was no, hey, we got friends down in Bethlehem. Maybe we can stay with them. Even if they could have found a place to stay, it would have been crude at best. Typically, historians tell us any place where travelers could have stayed, there was usually just a series of stalls that would have been built, probably in the courtyard of the home or the place in which Others owned where they kept animals to feed. And so even if they could have found a place where the animals would have normally been kept, if they found one of those places to stay, in fact, here it calls it in verse 7, an inn. There was no room for them in an inn. Don't get in your mind that that's like the Holiday Inn down the street. It's not. They would have found that kind of place. They would have simply been offered some feed for their animal if they actually had a donkey. We don't even know if they had a donkey. They may have actually just walked. So they would have been given some feed probably for the animal they had and a fire in which they could cook food if they had brought some food on the journey. It wasn't like there was the local restaurant inside the inn. But when they arrived, nothing was available even like that. Not even a stall for them to be in that would have been inside the courtyard that was makeshift so that people could stay there because of the registration that was going on. So they found no place like that for rest. The only place they could find, probably where the animals were now temporarily being kept, that's the place that they found that our Lord entered into creation. Some, the psalmist in Psalm 22, speaking of really the words of Jesus Christ when He was dying, verses 7 to 9 says this, All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. They were declaring, Listen, if really, if God is your Father, if you, as you claim to be, then certainly God would care for you. And yet, in Psalm 22, it says, Yet you are He who did bring me forth from the womb. You're the one who brought me forth from the womb. This is Jesus Christ, God the Son, fully dependent upon the care of God the Father. And so even the psalmist in Psalm 22 declares that God is orchestrating all of this. And yet here, the miraculous event takes place in obscurity, in rejection. Sorry, there's no room for you here. I know you're heavy with child, but we can't have you. J.C. Ryle again says of this very moment, he had come, had he come to save mankind in royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy to us. 
had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder at that, that God would even come, let alone even live in a palace made by men. But God chose to come as the very poorest of mankind, as the lowliest of low. This is unspeakable and unsearchable, unquote. Another commentator described it this way, quote, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country or county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched. There was sweat, pain, blood. There was cries. The earth was cold. The earth was hard. The smell of birth was mixed with the stench of manure and wet straw. It was clearly a leap down. Nothing could be lower. Unquote. Nothing could be lower. And so when we read verse 6 and 6 says, and it came about that while they were there, The days were completed for her to give birth. Make no mistake that in those very words is the very wisdom of God saying that the days were complete for Jesus Christ to enter to a place whereby nothing could be lower for Jesus Christ. And Mary takes this newborn babe and she wraps him in claws, lays him in the only thing that she could. Lays him in a feeding trough. I kept thinking to myself as I was reading this, this is not how my children came into the world. This is not how the grace of God has shined upon my own. My own life. as someone who does not deserve the grace of God. And yet God has granted us greater grace and a higher place than He even gave to His own Son at His birth. My children were born. They each had a team of doctors, a team of nurses rushing around. When they came out, they were measured. They were cleaned. They were weighed. They were graded as to their health. They were wrapped tight in a blanket and laid upon mom's chest. They were cared for in miraculous ways with the heat of heating beds and tables and laid in secure places. Most children born today, even in the poorest of nations, have greater human prospects for life than Jesus would have had at that time. And yet, Son of God was born into this world not as a prince, but as a pauper. The lowliest of low, 
stranger to those around him, unknown to what was happening. What do we learn from all of this? What do we learn from all of this? Well, first is to remember remember that the overruling providence of God is shown in this simple fact. That God orders all things in heaven and on earth. God orders all things in heaven and on earth. It was no mistake that a decree went out. It was no mistake that the Romans were ruling the world. It was no mistake that Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. It was no mistake that she gave birth at that moment. God is ruling all things in heaven and earth He turns even the hearts of the king to do his will. No matter what is happening, beloved, no matter what is going on, let that very fact guard your heart. No matter how abnormal it may seem in our world, God is ruling it all for his purposes. Secondly, we can learn this. We can never forget that through the incarnation of And subsequent suffering of Jesus Christ, God has purchased for all who would believe the title of glory. Jesus Christ being born in this earth and Jesus Christ therefore walking this life and living as a man yet without sin has purchased for us who believe the title to glory. Through his suffering and especially through his death and burial and resurrection, he has obtained for us eternal redemption by the forgiveness of our sins. This is why Jesus came. And then third, I believe that in the incarnation of Christ, it shows us just how we must come to Christ if we are to be saved. We come just like Jesus came, poor, destitute, fully dependent upon God. We come, the Bible says, bankrupt of spirit, poor of spirit, fully dependent upon God because there is nothing in ourselves to save. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can care for us through the forgiveness that is found in Christ alone. There is no salvation any other way. The incarnation of Jesus Christ here in Luke 2 is described to us in words that are unprofound. And yet it is the most profound event of all time. Think about it. This is the one who asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I did that? This is that very one who comes and is wrapped in claws in the hands of the very creation that He made. This is real humanity. God becoming man, the great doctrine of the church, the incarnation. 
God being real man, yet really God. The Son of God becoming a real man. Such a profound reality. There's something else taking place that day. There's these little shepherds around the fields. And they get a big surprise. We'll get that next time. Let's pray. Father, I trust that we would sit in awe of the grace we have been shown by you. Just to know you. Just to have any sense in which we could have a relationship with you. To know the wonder and majesty of the incarnation. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, would condescend in such a way and to such an extent that He might face it all from birth to death. That He might be a great high priest for us who believe. Lord, thank You for granting us faith. Thank You that we could know You. That You, in Your mercy and in Your grace, made a way And that because of that, you drew us to yourself that we might have faith in you. Turning from our sin, turning from our own wickedness, turning from our own desire to save ourselves, the delusion of the wicked one, fearing death, being held captive through the fear of death, anxious about all things, anxious about the day we live, the way we live, where we live, what's coming. You have seen fit to give us freedom from all that in Christ. Knowing that in Him we are secure, safe. That nothing can take place with us that You would not allow for Your glory, for our good, for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise You for that. Praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Help us proclaim this truth to family, friends, and co-workers, and those who do not know you, that they too might hear the good news. We'll praise you for it. All to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.